Welcome to Podcast One. We hope you'll support our sponsors who bring you these podcasts absolutely free and with limited interruptions. And of course, we appreciate you listening to this show, which will get started in just a second. Since 1983, Eddie Trunk has been the voice for fans of rock, hard rock, and heavy metal. A best-selling author, host of TV's That Metal Show, and seven national radio shows, including Trunk Nation, daily on Sirius XM. Interesting. Eddie offers the world his news-making interviews, passionate analysis, honest commentary, and who knows what else. So welcome to the Eddie Trunk Podcast. podcast1.com and iTunes. Hope you're doing well. Thank you for tuning in for it. And uh, we're great uh, doing here. We're, we got a lot of good stuff going on. We got a lot of big things coming for the Eddie Trunk podcast in the coming weeks. A lot of cool guests as well. And we're right into the heart of the summer, obviously. So there's a lot of things going on as far as concerts and music and all that good stuff. And I'll get you covered with it with a lot of cool interviews that are coming up in the very near future. And one that we have for you this week, which is with Noel Monk, a guy that, well, in all honesty, is not a household name by any stretch of the imagination, but a guy that if you are a fan of the band Van Halen, you certainly would want to know about because Noel Monk managed Van Halen. In their glory years, to say the least, we are talking the years of 1978 through 1985. In the beginning, he started out as their tour manager, 78, 79, in that area, then became their actual day-to-day personal manager. Noel Monk and I have a bit of a little bit of a relationship, a little bit of a history, whereas uh, he managed a band after Van Halen, a couple years after his breakup with Van Halen. He managed a band from New Jersey that I had signed to a record deal called Profit. And it's not talked about in his book at all, but that is my connection to Noel. And I have not spoken to Noel Monk in 30 years, but we did work together briefly back when this band was uh, going on the New Jersey scene and signed to Megaforce and trying to like any band, get over the hump and make some inroads. And uh, I do mention that briefly to Noel in the conversation that you're about to hear. But neither that's neither here nor there. It was just fascinating to me because I hadn't heard from the man in a long, long time and hadn't had any connections with him in a long time. And then all of a sudden, hear about this book, and he wrote it. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, I knew at the time he managed Van Halen, of course, but I, I'd never heard any of the stories, and now they are in print for all to read. And man, are there some stories in the book that Noel has written. The book is called Running with the Devil, and it is out now. And I'll tell you, I spend about an hour and a half talking with Noel, and I easily could have went longer because there are so many stories in this book, it'll blow your mind. (laughs) There's a lot to, to pull apart. 
But we get into a good portion of it, and it's there's a few things when you listen to this conversation that I think are kind of interesting. First of all, it seems to me that even though Noel had nothing to do with the Sammy Hagar era of Van Halen, he he definitely has a understandable bias towards the Roth years because he's very, um, you know, he really doesn't believe there is anything such as Van Halen that came after 1984 in that album. He, he, he also, I guess, is under the belief, and I don't know, some people are under this belief, and I don't know where it comes from. I imagine it comes from the sense that, uh, that I, or the, uh, the point that I am friendly with Sammy Hagar and always loved and appreciated Sammy Hagar. Some people read into that as some sort of bias with me against the Roth years, which is maybe one of the most ludicrous assessments you could ever have about me. I've said many times, I think the first four Van Halen records are untouchable. I think that they are as important in rock history as Led Zeppelin's records. I mean, I don't think those records can be touched. And a lot of people, when I say first four, they're like, well, what do you mean? What about Diver Down? What about 1984? I, I The first four are untouchable to me. Diver Down... Half of its covers, it's there's a few songs on there, great. And 1984, as a Van Halen purist, that's where the keyboards really started to come into the equation a little bit. And then some of the other songs on 1984, although it certainly has some great songs, some of the other songs are played out to me. I don't need to hear Jump, Panama, Hot for Teacher anymore. I mean, I get it. They've been overplayed in my view. So for me, the first four are sacred. That's not saying I don't like stuff on Diver Down in 1984. But but there's some people, and it, it's always made me laugh because they think that I, 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 and I don't know if Noel is of this belief, but he definitely gives me some ribbing about Sammy Hagar, which I had to defend a little bit. But there are some people under the incredibly erroneous belief that I'm in this sort of Sammy Hagar-only Van Halen camp, which couldn't be further from the truth. What I've always said consistently is that I enjoy the Sammy Hagar records very much, I think they are a, a different generation's version of Van Halen. I think Van Halen with Sammy Hagar was a totally different band. I do not look at it as the same. I never felt the need that I had to pick a side between which version of the band I liked. I like them both. I look at them as both very different bands, but I like and enjoy both versions of the band. I've consistently said that. And I've consistently said the first four records with Roth are the best top to bottom in the band's entire history. So I don't know where that perception comes from sometimes. I think, like I said, it comes from the fact that Sammy talks to me. I have Sammy on my shows. I like Sammy. We're friends. I was a fan of Sammy's long before he was in Van Halen. Uh, I was a, a fan of Montrose. So I I look at it as two very different things. I never understood there's there's always been this thing amongst some Van Halen fans where you got to choose a side, and that never made sense to me. Why can't you look at them as two different bands, both very good, both very different? But anyway, Noel's quite a character, and we have a good time talking here, and you'll hear that conversation in a matter of minutes, and we dive into a lot into the book and um, – a little side note to this, after the conversation that you're about to hear, Noel Monk called back to my radio show because, as you know, and as I've been saying, most of the radio shows you hear, uh, most of the interviews you hear on the podcast, they originated from my Sirius XM show on volume. 
And again, just to let everybody know, that show airs live Monday to Friday, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time. And then it replays 9 to 11 p.m. Eastern, all on Sirius XM channel 106. And then uh, it's on demand on the Sirius XM app. So again, as I've said many times, what you get here on this podcast one time a week is happening five days a week, six if you count my additional Monday show on Sirius XM, six times a week live on the radio. So I encourage you to join me over there. We give you a little sampling each and every week here on the podcast when we post new on Thursday. So you're going to enjoy this. I hope you, if you have Noel's book, Running with the Devil, you know how incredible it is. And, uh, you know, as I said the other day, too, you a lot of times people write books and you're like, well, you know, I don't know what's true in that. I got to hear from the band. Well, unfortunately, as we all know, Van Halen doesn't talk. They don't talk. They don't do interviews. So we're never going to get a rebuttal because these guys don't talk. The only one from the original band that talks is Michael, and I have him on my show, and he's a dear friend. And when you read the book, Michael comes off exactly as how I thought he would have come off, as a really good guy and a guy that just kind of goes with the flow and deals with the hand that he's dealt and um, you know, doesn't rock the boat. But, man, some of the other stuff on the other guys is uh, is is somewhat explosive and certainly damning in some instances. And I, I'll be curious if they ever do do an interview, if they – decide to talk about, um, you know, <laughs> some of these stories in here. They're really pretty incredible. So Noel Monk, Van Halen's manager, ton of stuff in here. There's nobody that doesn't love Van Halen, and you're going to love this conversation about his book and the glory days of VH. Before we get to Noel, I want to remind you of a couple things. First of all, I mentioned this last week. We have a new program going with Amazon and I'd like you to check out my Amazon store. Yes, I have a storefront on Amazon, ladies and gentlemen. And to go there, you go to Amazon.com slash shop slash Eddie Trunk. Go to that link, and you will see a bunch of stuff handpicked by me, including Noel's book, which you can buy including my own books, including some records that I selected, including a few other things that are selected, specifically targeted to things that may be of interest to you. The new Metallica record, which I'm listening to and liking, which is, of course, I put the limited deluxe edition in there, which I think is awfully cool. The new Stone Sour, which is, for me, one of the best records out right now. So it's a really cool thing. It's it's stuff that I, in some cases, not all, in most cases, I've handpicked, but definitely stuff that will be of interest to you if you listen to the Eddie Trunk podcast, which you're doing. So whenever you go to Amazon, start there. Amazon.com slash shop slash Eddie Trunk. You'll see my storefront. Take a look at what's there if you want to buy something great. If not, continue on to Amazon from my storefront. And it would be greatly appreciated. Once again, bookmark it, Amazon.com slash shop slash Eddie Trunk. Thank you for doing so. One other note before uh, we get to the interview for this week. This is a huge week, speaking of Sirius XM, for Guns N' Roses activity. Because the day you're hearing this, which is uh, post-day Thursday, if you're hearing it on the day it first posts, 
Guns N' Roses are playing a private show at the Apollo Theater in New York City. And it is a big deal when bands do this. Sirius XM have, have, has done this in the past with Metallica, Bruce Springsteen, Paul McCartney. It's incredible. You see some of the biggest names in music history playing a, a small legendary venue. Really very special if you're able to get in. And it's uh, always a contest to try to get tickets. And the concert and everything that happens will be airing over a Guns N' Roses dedicated channel on Sirius XM. That would be channel number 41. So I'm just mentioning that to you guys. If you're listening this to this on the day it posts, which is Thursday, in this case, the 20th of July, because tonight is the big Guns N' Roses event at the Apollo in New York City. And I will be hosting the coverage. I'm going to be doing my volume show live from the Apollo 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time on Channel 106. And then with my co-host Keith Roth, I will be hosting the actual coverage of the concert that happens that night with that coverage starting at 9 p.m. Eastern on Channel 41. And that goes right into the broadcast of the actual concert live as it happens. So it's a pretty big event. If you have SiriusXM, I hope you join me for it. Again, live from the Apollo for Trunk Nation, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time on 106 volume. And then later on, starting at 9 p.m. Eastern, the concert coverage leading into the actual show, which will be broadcast, and that happens on Channel 41, which is Guns N' Roses Radio, starting at 9 p.m., and I'll be involved in both broadcasts. Excited to bring that to you. And then this weekend, I head, uh, on Friday, head over to Ohio, the Loud in Lima Festival, which I will be hosting all of my appearances, as usual, on the homepage of eddytrunk.com. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Eddie Trunk. All right, so we'll come back and we'll get into a conversation with Noel Monk, original manager of Van Halen with some tremendous Van Halen stories for this week's Eddie Trunk podcast. You do not want to miss this, my friends. Stick around. The Eddie Trunk Podcast. Well, think about it. Everybody does everything they have to do to keep their family safe, right? In any situation. Not too long ago, I was uh, took my kids into New York City, which is not that far from where I live. But you know, my kids are young, and first time they're really starting to get into being in the city. So you keep an eye on them. You hold their hand. You keep you know, search, keep an eye out for strangers. Make sure nobody's trying to pickpocket. Nobody's trying to do anything crazy. You know, you're always, uh, you're driving in, you make sure the seatbelt's on, all that sort of stuff, all the things you do to keep your family safe, right? Well, how about a home security system? It's another fantastic way to keep them safe, and it's super easy. With Simply Safe, each Simply Safe system is a security arsenal, my friends. It's expertly engineered to protect your home. You can set up the system yourself in under an hour. No drilling or hardwiring required, and you save hundreds on installation fees. Simply Safe has a super fast wireless connection to authorities and police dispatch. We're talking 24 7 alarm monitoring for just $14.99 a month with no hidden fees. No annoying gotchas. That's it. No long-term contracts either. Simply Safe will never lock you in like other alarm companies do. You can feel free to cancel at any time. You also get a 60-day risk-free trial to try the system out for your home and see if you like it. 
Check it out, Simply Safe. Right now, go to simplysafe.com slash dad, D A D. That's Simply Safe, spelled S I M P L I S A F E, dot com slash dad. You can order today, you'll get an extra 10% off plus a free keychain remote and free shipping. Simply Safe, spelled S I M P L I S A F E, dot com slash dad, D A D. Hey, have you heard? Podcast One has a whole bunch of awesome new shows filled with big names that are waiting for you on our brand new amazing app. This one's a game changer. There's Norman Lear talking to Amy Poehler, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, and Charles Barkley. Geffen Playhouse Unscripted with Brian Cranston, Josh Gad, and soon Neil Patrick Harris. Nice. OC Real Housewife, Heather Dubrow's World, Lady Gang's Three Mimosa Podcast with Leah Michelle, Nelly Furtado, L. King, and more. Plus every episode of The Adam Carolla Show, Dan Patrick, and Rich Eisen. And if you like what happens in the ring, we've got Steve Austin, Chris Jericho, Chael Sonnen, and a whole bunch more. So download our one of a kind new app and see for yourself. Go to the App Store, Google Play, or download it now at podcast1.com. This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. We're back with the Eddie Trunk Podcast, and now it is time to speak with original Van Halen manager Noel Monk. Noel managed the band from 1978 to 1985. He tells all in his book, Running with the Devil. We get into a lot of conversation about the classic era of Van Halen. Joining me now, again, this interview, courtesy of my radio show, Trunk Nation, on Sirius XM 106 volume, here is Noel Monk. How are you, Noel? I don't know if you remember, but you and I worked together for a very brief time. Which country? (laughs) (laughs) You managed a band that I signed uh, called Profit to Megaforce. Do you recall that? How could I not? (laughs) (laughs) I know we're not here to talk about... I I know we're not here to... Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I say, I know we're not here to talk about profit, but I, as soon as I saw your name and saw you wrote this book, I remembered, you know, our, our uh, dealings with that band a few years, of course, after you, you finished with Van Halen. Yeah, that was more profit and loss than, than profit. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But a very good band, and uh, the guys are still around out oh, they're there. They're a good band. They just yep. didn't learn quick enough. Yep. So how have you been? I'm very good. It's been 30 years, but it's good to talk to you again. And I got to tell you, uh, this book is absolutely phenomenal. I had a chance to read it, every page of it, and I enjoyed every page of it. And my audience has been talking about it since the moment it came out. And uh, for you, I guess the the place to start, Noel, is that it, it seems like you've you waited almost 30 years to write this book. Why did you wait that long? Was there a legal issue around that before you could write it? No, basically, I spent a lot of time doing other projects. But I, in 1990, when I did 12 Days on the Road, the Sex Pistol book, uh, I decided I'd do a Van Halen book. And I started writing stories and collecting stuff. I mean, I had thousands of pages and hundreds of files. And so over the years, I would go through all of them. And uh, I finally found Joe Layden, who was a brilliant writer. I can write. He can really write. He is the absolute perfect writer who I was looking for. 
So it was just the right time. I had a great book company, HarperCollins, and it literally took us, Joe and I, about three years to put it together. There's tremendous detail in the book and tremendous stories, and I was going to ask you about that as well. Did you did you keep a lot of journals and a lot of notes and logs during your time? Because, I mean, as detailed in the book, it was some wild times. Did you write notes, or do you have a tremendous memory? How did you recall everything? I've got a good memory, but my wife would tell you that you wanted me to throw the 117 boxes out. I mean, I've been carrying around. I have all my Fillmore notes. I have my plots from Janis Joplin, The Dead, The Doors, The Airplane. I never throw anything out, Eddie. It's just, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's always worked for me. With the pistol book and with this book, everything is backed up. But I was going through hundreds of pages. And, And, you know, my secretary's, notebooks and my notebooks and all the legal files it was a very it was a real mammoth job well it paid off because this book is absolutely incredible and we should tell people that don't know your story you were predominantly a tour manager you had been for many years working with some of those bands that you mentioned and that's where you started with van halen as well and and no what i found interesting is that you were hired essentially by Warner Brothers, Van Halen's label. Van Halen was kind of dropped in your lap to tour manage. You didn't really know much about the band, and you were really kind of working for the label initially when they were first introduced to you to be their tour manager. And I found that kind of interesting because back then, in in 77, 78, during that time frame, did record labels traditionally hire tour managers? Because that's not the way it is today, but is that the way the business was then, or was that kind of a unique situation? No. Basically, um, they hired tour managers. Uh, When I did the Sex Pistols, Carl Scott, who was the VP of artist development, said, no, I can't find anyone to do this tour. I said, I want to do it. Um, We were independent contractors who took bands out on the road uh i did lighting i did sound i did all of that i did the booking and and whatever they needed and the record companies didn't have um tour managers on staff and they hired us for a phenomenally low fee (laughs) and um we would take their bands out on the road well, I guess the difference is, and, and where that would make sense at that period of time would be the the fact that today, of course, unfortunately, records don't sell, and the records are really just promotional tools for the tour. But back then, it was really about touring to sell the record, so it would make sense that Warner Brothers or whatever label would hire you to tour manage the band because they needed to make sure things ran smoothly out there because that's their investment and their return is going to be when they see the record start to sell. That that would be the model at that time, right? That's exactly right. I couldn't say that any better. Well, when you first tell me, tell, tell me about your impressions because you – you actually talk about in the book that you you met with Van Halen and talked about them going out on their very first tour. 
but you had not even really heard their music. So you met the guys and got ready to get them out on the road because the music at that point was pretty much irrelevant to you. You just had to do your job no matter whether you liked it or not, right? That's, you could do my interview. Uh, <laughs> that's exactly right, Eddie. I didn't care what they sounded like, what they looked like. All Carl wanted me to do was break them as an act. And so, no, I never heard their music before I got to Chicago. And like you said, it didn't matter to me. It was a job. What were your impressions, share with the audience if you can, when when was the very first time you heard their music? Chicago, first show. In the Aragon Ballroom. I did every show in 78 with them. I was on the road for eight or nine months. Um, it was a very grueling tour. I mean, we'd get maybe two or three days off before they'd fly us to Japan. But our 10-day, which is a sales report, was doing so well normally the bands I took out lasted three, four, five, excuse me, weeks. You know, and in three, four, or five weeks, you know whether they're going to sell. And Van Halen took off like a rocket because they were brilliant. One of the absolute best stage shows I'd ever seen. And they never did a bad show except the US Festival. You pay us too much money, we will screw it up. Um, <laughs> but no matter what substances they were under, they always performed. I mean, Eddie is a genius guitar player. I, you know, he doesn't make mistakes. And David is one of the greatest front men I ever dealt with. Um, anyone that can jump off a drum riser 15 feet and do a split and land like a gymnast, name me another one who can even come close to that. David spent hours and hours of time before a show uh, stretching so he wouldn't pull ligaments and tendons and you, you always hear about football players who you know pull muscles well, david for an hour an hour and a half before a show stretched and he was never missed a night of stretching he was an incredible worker and he had great raps okay he didn't have the you know, uh, Adele's voice. <laughs> but that wasn't, that wasn't what Van Halen was about. He had the perfect voice for Van Halen. That so, initial tour, that initial tour, Noel, you, you guys were third billed to uh, Ronnie Montrose in the middle slot and Journey as the headliner. Is that correct? You got it. But that's not that was the first two, three months of the tour. After that we opened for the Sabbath crew, which was a great bunch of guys. I mean, we really got along with Sabbath very well. 
but it's also well documented. And I think a lot has been discussed about the fact that you guys opened for Sabbath at a time where the wheels were starting to come off for Black Sabbath. So it's it's been widely reported that that Van Halen really, really torched them pretty much every night, that it was a hard act for Sabbath to come on after. Was that your assessment being out, out there in those early years as well? I would say nobody could follow us and be comfortable. I mean, Ted Nugent had us on for one show. And afterwards, we heard that he would never have us open for him again. Uh, I mean, he was totally blown off the stage. Ozzy, I'm sorry he could carry his own. But like I said, we were a brilliant stage act. Always were through our whole career. And during that Sabbath tour, did you not have an instance? Was there something where Sabbath canceled or there was an issue and then and then you guys stepped up and played the full set and had to come back? To every, if you can recount that story. Oh, that's simple. It, I mean, everyone tells it. Anyone who wasn't there tells it and tells their version, which I love. I love hearing stories from people who weren't there and never met the band. Because they give it a whole different outlook. Total ineptitude. But what happened was we got to Memphis and um, we got to the show and the promoter comes up and says, we have a problem. Uh, After you go on, we'll talk about it. I said, okay. So we went on and did our set and Albert, who was their road manager, great guy said no ozzy's missing <laughs> i said well, you mean like we, we can't find him he said you're very smart yes we can't find him no i said well that's a problem i'm glad <laughs> we did our set and we can get out of here and this little weasel of a promoter oh, i really wanted to smack in the mouth he comes up to me and says, listen, Noel, um, we really need your help. I said, well, David can't dress like Ozzy. He said, no, 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 that's not it. We want you to go on stage, not with David, but just with Ed, Al, and Michael and Vamp while we come out and, and announce that Ozzy will not be able to play. I'm thinking you blank mother blank you can curse here no I said no problem we'll be there so I went back to the dressing room I said guys get your clothes on let's get out of here I said this promoter is crazy (laughs) he thinks I'm going to put my band out there to get murdered I really wanted to break his neck, but we headed back to the hotel and then he and everyone were sitting, not, not the band, the band, they all went to their room and did what they were doing. And there was no Ozzy. It was a Hyatt house. We stayed a lot of Hyatt houses. Um, and no Ozzy, you know, and they're hypothesizing that, you know, he was, kidnapped, murdered, and you knew Ozzy. I knew Ozzy long before 
that's who are. And you didn't mess with Ozzy. No one was going to grab Ozzy. Ozzy was a tough English kid. So I figured he crawled up in the corner somewhere and went to sleep. But, you know, there was nothing I was going to do. to her. So about 5 o'clock in the morning, uh, Albert called me and said, no, we found Ozzy. I said, how'd you find him? What table was he under? He said, no, we were at a Hyatt yesterday, and he got here, and he was really tired, and he went to, he took his room key out from yesterday and looked at the number and went to the room, and the maid was making up the room, and he said, can I? She said, yeah, go on in. So I went in and got in the bed, and he went to sleep. He was tired. And so he woke up about five and said, when are we going on? <laughs> I said, Albert, I'm glad you found him. Somehow I suspected that Ozzy wasn't, wasn't beat up. Anyone that messed him would have gotten beat up. But so that's what happened in that story. I've heard 19 versions of it, but most of the stuff that I was there for uh, is, you know, totally warped. The stories are funny to me. And that was one of the reasons I did the book. I was so sick of hearing all the bullshit that was starting to come out. And I'm sure now everyone's going to write a book. And I'd live with this band I lived with them for seven years. I was with them every day. I was on ninety-five percent of the shows, and I, well, yeah. I mean, you take the paternity suit insurance. I mean, that story <laughs> you can still, Eddie, you can still take it and Google it, and there's a long story about how now Dave is not protecting his his, little, his penis. He's protecting his, his, his balls. And I'm going, <laughs> wow, they've taken this for 30 years. And what actually happened was after Edward got a paternity suit, which I went into, David came to me in the office in 81 and said, no, I got to get paternity insurance. I said, how much do you want, David? Oh, I want a million dollars. I said, oh, that should be easy. Uh he said, come on, Noel, you can do anything. I said, yeah, okay. So I called around, and I finally called Lloyd, Lloyd's of London, and they did what you did. They laughed. They said, oh, sure, no problem, but call us in a couple years. <laughs> they weren't going to do it. you know. So Dave and I figured, hey, it's a good story. Let's put it out. So well, the story, the, the story. Insurance. The, the story, Noel, about the paternity insurance, and you just touched on it, the story in the book about Eddie being concerned about uh, a paternity case against him is legendary. And I want to use that as a little bit of a teaser because we got to go into a break here and we'll come back and we'll continue the conversation because there's a bunch stu- uh, more stuff I'd love to touch on in this amazing book. Again, the book is called Running with the Devil. Noel Monk is its author with Joe Layden. 
Uh, it is a backstage pass to the Wild Times, Loud Rock, and the Down and Dirty Truth behind the making of Van Halen from a guy who was there every step of the way in the glory years of David Lee Roth, Noel Monk. So let's take a break right now. Noel, if you can hang through that break, we'll come back. We've got a lot more to get into, a lot more I want to cover uh, in this book with Noel. We'll come back with more right after this. This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. I got to tell you, I've been watching some of Alone. It's amazing. It's back with crazy new twists, and uh, being together has never felt so alone. Alone's fourth season, maybe its best season. The rules have changed. Hardcore survivalists being dropped into the unforgiving wilderness, but that's where the similarities with the previous seasons end. Ten participants are comprised of five competing teams. There's brothers, there's fathers and sons, married couple, all who have unbreakable bonds. And these competitors, well, they will be split apart and dropped off as individuals, equipped with their ten items, five each, and they go at it. I mean, you're talking about perseverance, resilience, self-reliance, endurance, survival, suffering, the human spirit. Of course, there's predators. They're back on North Vancouver Island. And at stake, $500,000 awarded to the team that can last the longest. Alone, you got to check it out. It really is an awesome and and fascinating and incredible show. Alone, Thursdays, 10-9 Central on History. There are 120,000 unsolved murder cases in America. It was the next day that I found out from my parents when it happened, that my sister was killed. Each one is called a cold case. Sometimes you have to look really closely to find the evidence. Damn I, I killed her. Damn it, I killed her. Cold Case Files, the podcast. Garcia is walking into the home of a real monster. I was nervous. I realized what kind of person I was dealing with. It's a goosebump moment. Download new episodes every Tuesday on the Podcast One app or subscribe at Apple Podcasts or PodcastOne.com. This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. There's so much to cover here with Nolan. He's been very generous to give us uh, a good amount of time here to discuss it. But, Noel, what I find interesting is we, we touched on this in a, a little bit. You started out as the band's tour manager. You had a big history as a tour manager and a great amount of experience doing that. The guy who actually managed Van Halen, though, in the first year or two while you were their tour manager was a guy by the name of Marshall Burl. And uh, you talk about in the book how he showed really a great level of disinterest in Van Halen, even with all the immediate buzz about the band, about how good they were, about how special they were, the live shows, the record, how much Warner Brothers was, was hyped about the prospects of this band. I found it really bizarre that a guy who would be lucky enough to be the manager would show such sort of disinterest. Why do you think that was? Did you ever sort of... Figure that out? I could never figure that out. You got to be a brainless idiot. Of course, I'm not talking about him. But how could you possibly not be on the road with this act that is gold and platinum and disrespect him? I mean, what he did was phenomenally stupid. And... I have no answer for you, Eddie. 
I really don't. I don't understand it. I'm a stupid guy. What can I say? <laughs> All I know is, you know, I love these guys. I wasn't looking to, to be their manager. I was a really brilliant tour manager. I poured Southern Comfort for Janis Joplin. I love rock and roll. Managers to me were mostly a pain in the ass because they didn't know what they were doing, especially with new bands. But I want to say just one thing, Eddie. Can I just say one thing? Of course, yeah. Um, One of the major reasons I wrote this book, because, yes, the business is turned on its head. Selling millions of records and doing it in the 80s and 90s way is turned on its head to how it's done now, making money selling tickets. Right. But we have the greatest fans, and still do, in the world. Without our fans, no Van Halen, no any band. And I wrote the book a lot for the young bands to, to, to let them know what you do not do unless you want to destroy your career. This is a, a, a book that is not just talking about a band. It's talking about how you handle yourself in the business. You want to get screwed up and messed up and party and take all the money. My book tells two things, what happened and what you shouldn't do. And I well, want the young bands out there to, to recognize that. That's all I want to say. That's a great point because, for me, the, the, one of the big takeaways from this book, having been a Van Halen fan since the beginning, one of the big things that kind of was surprising is I always knew of Van Halen being the party band. They were the ultimate party rock band, and they certainly projected that. And when you went to the shows, you certainly felt that, and the music, a lot of it encapsulated that as well. But one of the things that I was surprised is just how much that party really existed backstage. I mean, there's a lot of bands that some of it's smoke and mirrors. What you paint throughout this picture is these demons were really deep-seated with Van Halen. The drug use and the alcohol was really a big, big issue right, almost right from the very start, wasn't it? Well, Eddie, yes. And, Eddie, we also had girls. And there's another misconception about the women on the road. Everyone talks about them as groupies and sluts and whatever. You don't have a band if you don't have those wonderful women who follow the bands. You would have a bunch of frustrated guys, some women who are out there, and it wouldn't work. These women are wonderful and always treated the band with respect. And, you know, the attitude that a lot of people have towards groupies sucks. You know, these women were essential to an act. Uh, And we partied more than any band I ever saw, and it was nonstop. And... Some of it was the devil, and some of it was a lot of fun. You know, we had great hookers in Paris. Come on. 
I mean, we had the finest wines. We had we had a blast. And yes, yeah. we screwed up. We overdid it. We didn't see what was coming. And it changed us very quickly. And there was nothing I could do, Eddie. Well, you that's, know, that's, that's say, where I'm... Why that... did you take him to an intervention? And I go, right. what, are you out of your mind? Well, that's why I wanted. To, that's what I wanted to ask you because you said we. You use the term we there a lot, and I know that reading in reading this book, you you know you had your fun here and there, but you were nowhere near as as caught up in the the partying scene as the band you were managing. But th- that's something that is uh, an interesting point, Noel. Is that this is a band when you read through this book and you read how into drugs and alcohol and partying they had become and how dependent they became on it. Was there, there was, there wasn't really, you didn't see any opportunity to really put this thing at full stop and say, okay, I got to get these guys cleaned up or I'm going to lose them. No, it became evident by 81 that it was heading in the wrong direction. I had been out with a lot of bands, and there was no way that I... People say, well, why didn't you stop it? Why didn't you make it? For one, I'm no bloody angel. You know, and no, I could not do the nearly what they did in drinking and drugs. But I'm also not a hypocrite. Um, I was drinking with rockers. I was hanging with the Grateful Dead in 68. You know, this is not like a big surprise to me. But the amount that, that took over did shock me. It was like, cold water in my face this was had to be somehow curtailed and there was no way it wasn't happening and of course as the band as the band got so successful so quickly the jump from van halen one to van halen two was was gargantuan just in terms of how quick the success came and anyone knows that with that success getting a hold of those substances those sort of people start hanging around. It intensifies, and I would imagine because Van Halen got so big so quick, the stuff kept coming in, and that whole that part of it intensified right on with the success of the band. I saw Eddie's private dealer, and I used to go out there really busting heads on bootleggers, and... I saw him out there actually dealing to some of the kids in the audience, and he was always around for Eddie. And I really wanted to clock this guy. And I thought, no, he's just going to end up finding a dangerous dealer. It's not going to go away if you beat the shit out of this guy and throw him off the tour. Some another sleazy dealer will take his place. Um, You know, everything that we handled, it was the five of us, and we handled it together. 
Um, a lot of it was uncontrollable. A lot of it was controllable. And a lot of it we did very well with. I mean, our stage act was so great. Nobody ever came close to David and Edward. I mean, the backing band, Michael had a beautiful voice. He's a good bass player. The drummer, you, you didn't need him. Uh, you had him because you were stuck to him like super glue because he was Ed's brother. And being Ed's brother was a trial and tribulation for Al. Because what if your older brother was a genius guitar player and you were not a bad drummer? And being not a bad drummer is very different from being hailed as the greatest ever. Right. And usually with a band like this, you got Dave and see without Dave or, or Ed, you don't have Van Halen. Because no one's going to be jumping off that drum riser or will end up in the hospital quick. You know, and anyone can fill in as drummer and, and bass player. Although Michael was a sweetheart, really nice guy. They stuck it to him, which was the most, the worst thing I'd ever seen, frankly. They really stuck it to him. And well, I let, let me let me ask you. Yeah, I mean, I know we're kind of jumping around a little bit here, and and I, this is all great stuff. But you know, Michael Anthony is of the original four guys in Van Halen, by far the well, actually the only guy I truly know, and he's a friend, and I love him to this day, and I see him and talk to him all the time. He's one of the nicest, one of my favorite people in the world, to be honest with you. And when I read this book, and I don't know Dave or Eddie or Alex. I interviewed Eddie once, uh, the one record they did with Sharon. That was the only opportunity. As you know, Van Halen, especially <laughs> these days, are very, very, very tight-lipped. You, you don't really get much from them. But what you, the way you painted Michael Anthony, even in these early years, did not surprise me in the least because that is exactly the type of guy that I would expect him to have been. Um, and and you, you, you talk about it quite a bit. I mean, it really bothered you because they really stuck it to him with, when they presented him a contract which cut him out of all the publishing when the band originally was all equal. Is that correct? Yes, but they didn't just cut him out. You can do that. You can say, well, okay, we're changing our deal. But they did it in the middle of the 84 tour after the record was done. And they said, you're out of the royalties for 84. Well, wait a minute. That record's out. He lost millions. If he had done what I wanted him to do, he could have gotten out of it. But Michael never came to me. Ed, Al, and Dave always came to me. Al came to me with his big pink elephants coming out of the wall. But I would have told Michael, Michael, tell him to shove it. Tell him you're taking a vacation tonight. They won't be able to go on without you. And tell them, you're not going to lose millions and millions of dollars because you're going to sign away your rights. It disgusted me. 
I mean, I've seen disgusting things, and as bad as you can get. Why Michael allowed it to happen? You got to tell me, Eddie. I don't understand it. I don't understand it. I never will. Michael and I never discussed it. He never even came to me. And you see in the book what they did to him. Were there were there any, ever no? I want to ask you about two things around that. Were there ever was there ever a time that at least on your radar that they had considered replacing Michael in the band? Because I've had Billy Sheehan on my show, and he he's talked about I don't know if it was before or after your time with the band that there were overtures for him to join Van Halen more than one time, and uh, I, there was also a rumor for a while that Eddie Van Halen actually when things got bad, wanted to leave his own band and join KISS. Is there any truth to either I've of those? I've heard all that bullshit. I, I never crossed my desk. You know, and a lot of musicians you know, want to want you to think that, oh, I was going to be in Van Halen. You know, when Van Halen broke up in 85, he never came back together again. When they did, they were old men. I mean, David can't jump. David wears a suit now and a hat to cover his bald head. Um, there was no Van Halen after that. You know, there was a Van Sharon and a Van, and a Van I guess a Van Hagar and a Van Uzi. What's it? But without Eddie and Dave, and this is my opinion, a lot of people say, oh, I think anyone is great. Um, you know, but maybe Sharon wasn't so good. But I don't think anyone captured Van Halen the way Eddie and Dave did. And as far as, I mean, I've seen this some Malloy guy who's got a big story about how he almost was interviewed for a job. Well, who gives a shit? that you almost got a job. Who gives a shit that the Eddie might have said to someone wasted, oh, I'm now going to go to KISS. All that bullshit I never heard at the time. My, and I heard about everything, Eddie. And I'm sick of hearing everyone, oh, well, I was going to be in the band. And they were going to toss out so-and-so to put me in. Or Eddie was going to do bullshit. You know, the same bullshit as David has his paternity insurance. <laughs> it's that It's that same, same insurance is what these guys say, oh, I was offered to be in the band. If you were, I didn't hear about it, and I would have heard about it. You want to build yourself up a little bit and say you did an interview with the band? Great. I read the story. You know, it's fluff. You want to make yourself part of Van Halen? You should have been there in 78. Otherwise, you missed out. Well, no, I get, and I, there's a lot of people that feel the way you do about that original version of the band, and, and, and for my money, those records, especially those first four, to me, are untouchable. But you, there is, you do, it does seem that you, whether you like the period of the band or not, discount the, the what came with Sammy Hagar a little bit, because 
it is undeniable that they did tremendous business with Sammy and had a ton of hits and sold a ton of records with him. That was not a flash in the pan thing. So did that surprise you? I mean, I know you weren't the manager of the band at the time, but did it surprise you to see that Van Halen? Because the other thing that's telling about that is with 1984, they introduce keyboards and they start to to go into this more melodic direction. You yourself throughout the book talk about the limitations of David for as much of a brilliant frontman he is, the limitations as a singer that he had. So now Sammy comes into this band, Eddie's already going in a melodic direction and bringing in keyboards, and now he's got a powerhouse singer that can sing anything. Yes, it's different from David Lee Roth, but that that pairing yielded a ton of hit singles and sold a ton of records. Different band, I get it, but did that surprise you that they were able to do that? I don't think they did it. I mean, if I look at I looked at the figures, and they they didn't become what they could have become had Van Halen stayed together. If we had stayed together by '88, we would have been the biggest band in the world playing stadiums. But when David left, they couldn't do stadiums. They sold half the amount of records with this new guy. And anybody who, even a Sharon, uh, can call themselves Van Halen. But it ain't so. The big show was with David. And yes, he's got a nice voice. And... You know, um, he's respectable, Hagar is, but, you know, they're making it out as this is another Van Halen. Um, I don't buy it. You know, he didn't make nearly half the money that they made that we did. They didn't last. They fight. They're all at each other's throat. Who's going to be with who? Who's going to throw out Michael? And Hagar wants to be with David so he can cement his Van Halen-esque pile of shit. We got to take a break, and uh, there's still some more stories I want to get into with Noel Monk. Again, Noel was the manager of Van Halen, 78 through 85 And he tells so many amazing stories in his book, Running with the Devil, which is out right now. Noel, if you can hold through this break, a few more things I'd love to hit you with as we continue talking about this uh, incredible period in rock history with Noel Monk. The Eddie Trunk Podcast. Hey, a great way to check out my show and all the great shows on Podcast One is with the all-new Podcast One app. It is awesome. Check it out. There's no other podcast app like it. Download the all-new Podcast One app now in the App Store or on Google Play. You can find out everything about your favorite shows, get more content from my shows, find articles, social media, episodes, make playlists, You can comment, connect with others who listen to the show. There's a great little community on there for you to check out. You can share your favorite content, behind-the-scenes photos, 360 video on some shows. There's all sorts of great stuff. It looks so cool with so many things you can do. 
including fun things like rewards for listening and much, much more. Check it out, everybody. The all-new Podcast One app. Grab it now in the App Store or on Google Play. And be sure to enjoy the Eddie Trunk Podcast and all the great shows here at PodcastOne.com. Hey, everyone. It's Caitlin Bristow. You can listen to my show, Off the Vime, with Caitlin Bristow every Tuesday on Podcast One. Hear me take on taboo topics and unfiltered advice. I'll also be dishing with some amazing celebrities. Oh, and did I mention there'll be wine? So grab a glass and join me every Tuesday on PodcastOne.com, the new Podcast One app, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts. This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Noel, I want to pick up the conversation with something we Eddie, touched just, on. Just one thing, one thing. Yeah. Uh, if you know, and I listen to your show. It's a great show. You were Thank a you. great guy to, to to interview with, and I was looking forward to it. But Thank like, you. When I've been on, you haven't played anything but classic Van Halen. I haven't heard any Hagar. Or Sharon. <laughs> well, why to would the we? 80s. Exactly. <laughs> you, that you wasn't your it. period. That's not what we're talking about. <laughs> All right, but but still, you would think that you you'd play one if you're talking about Van Halen. No. Well, we'll happen. play one for you and if you want into the next break. I don't need to. I don't know what they are. <laughs> it's okay. You don't have to bore me. But listen, you know, if you listen to the classic 80s station, for every 10 Van Halen songs, you get a half a Hagar song. Come on, be reasonable. <laughs> uh, no, well, again, if you want one, we'll, we'll definitely make sure we get one no, in for you before okay. we wrap up. Send me the catalog. <laughs> I missed it. All right, you got it. So what I wanted to ask you about, Noel, was we we touched on this before, the paternity insurance that Roth wanted. But what I found interesting, and there's an unbelievable story in the book, and I'd like you to tell it, about Eddie Van Halen coming to you around the time just after he met Valerie Bertinelli, and he had a paternity concern, which you (laughs) quickly found out had no basis of truth to it. Please elaborate on that story and tell the audience that story from the book, if you can. Eddie, it wasn't so quick. I wish it was. Uh, Actually, we got papers from the Riverside District Attorney. And uh, this woman was saying that Eddie had a child by her and she she wanted to get paid and all this. This is not lightweight stuff. Eddie was getting married pretty soon. And at that point, Ed came. I said, yeah, we got a problem, Ed. He said, well, what do we do? I said, well, I think we better get rid of it. He said, no, please, you got to help me. I said, okay, who is she? What happened? He said, well, you know, she had a beautiful face. I loved her. You know, she gave the best blowjobs ever. I said, well, that's good. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> he said, you know, but I never fucked her. I said, okay, well, that's going to make it hard. He said, now, you're sure if she gave me a blowjob that I couldn't have gotten her pregnant? 
I said, Ed, to my knowledge, it couldn't have happened that way. He said, well, I said, if that's the way it went down, and Eddie never lied to me, you know, it was a very straight shooter. Um, well, he did tell a couple of fibs. Uh, like, I love you. I want you to be my manager. Um, <laughs> but basically, I said, then we got no problem. So they then said, okay, we want a, we want a DNA test. And I said, Ed, we got to do it. He said, no, I don't want to do it. Now, weeks are going by. I said, you don't want a woman with a baby when you're walking up the aisle. He said, no, that wouldn't be good. I said, no, Val would be really unhappy. And I said, but that's the way it went down. He said, you know, I love a beautiful face in my crotch. And, you know, and I said, okay, take it. I believe you. So he took the test and he wasn't the father. But if you think it was wham, bam, happened in a few days, you're wrong. We were rather scared. But when I heard him tell me that, I believed him, and there was no problem, Eddie. You, uh, There's a point in the book, Noel, where you describe Van Halen as a DEA band, which stands for Drugs, Ego, and Alcohol. And you also say in the book, I, I found something interesting very early on when it came to David Lee Roth, you said David Lee Roth at best was challenging, at worst sociopathic. Uh, I mean, was there ever a point when you got involved with these guys and saw these things come on so quick? I mean, it would manifest itself throughout the book in them destroying hotel rooms and ringing up unbelievable amounts of of damage. Was there ever a point where you felt like, I got to get out of this, that you were just going to walk away one day and bail on it? Or, or did you, did you say, no, I'm going to see this through right to the end? Obviously you did, but I mean, did you, did you come close to, to, to walking away? Never. This was my band and I've seen a lot of bands trash, do better trashing. Not many. (laughs) Uh, Michael was a master at taking food and making food murals in the dressing room. These guys were good. <laughs> I didn't care what they trashed. We paid for it. You know? It was part of our myth, and they liked the trash, so I didn't mind it myself. Um, but as far as the drugs go, uh, not being able to control it was was death on wheels. And um, that was the problem, you know. Wrecking a hotel room or a dressing room or is not a problem. I mean, you've been around the business long enough to know that that happens. That mm-hmm. we have a lot of women out there, you know. Then hey, when you know. Ah, no. uh, Noel's phone just cut out on us. Hopefully he'll uh, he'll be back on any second. As a matter of fact, since the phone dropped, why don't we take this opportunity to get a quick break in? Why don't we take that right now, and then we'll get Noel back on the line. Coming right back with more with Noel Monk. This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast.
hey, I've been telling you guys about True Car now for a while because there's something about True Car a lot of people just don't know, and it's important to get the word out. And that is that using True Car can also help you buy a used car. It's over 700,000 pre owned vehicles available from True Car certified dealers nationwide. And whether you're looking to buy new or used, you can get upfront pricing and information that empowers discounts off the list price for used cars and a better buying experience through the True Car Certified Dealer Network. There's over 700,000 pre owned vehicles available from the True Car Certified Dealer Nationwide Network. And you'll see what other people paid for the car you want so you can know what a fair price is and feel confident. With True Car, you can connect with a local certified dealer of your choosing so you can enjoy a quick, easy buying experience. Using True Car, you can easily find the new or used car you want. So when you are ready to buy a new or a used car, be sure to visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features, they are not available in all states. Have you heard Spike's Car Radio? It's comedian, actor, writer Spike Ferriston sitting on the porch in Malibu talking with some cool people about cool cars and life in general. My first guest is Jerry Seinfeld. He's right here. He was all right. Don't try to hug him. Chris Hardwick. I could feel everything on the road. I mean, it was right. basically like, it was like unprotected sex for driving. Could... <laughs> Jeremy Piven. I hold you know what? I think years. you and Jerry are spiritually tied to cars, <laughs> and I respect it and I love it, but I don't quite get it yet, but I want to get it. Download new episodes of Spikes Car Radio every Wednesday on the Podcast One app, or save time and subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or at PodcastOne.com. This, this is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Noel, if you ever get to your back to your home turf of New York City, please come sit in with me. I'd love to to dig more into I'd love this with to you. Do that, but but we can we can come back and talk some more whenever you want. All right. Well, with the time that we have left, there's a couple things that I need to get to. One of the major stories and one of the most astonishing things in the book, and again, everybody listening, just check out the book. It's called Running with the Devil. Noel wrote this book along with uh, his co-author, Joe Layden, and of course, in, in case you just joined us, Noel was manager of Van Halen, 78 through 85. So it is the glory years. It is some of the greatest records ever made, and Noel tells those stories in this book. But going back to the band's original manager, Marshall Burl, he did something that even by today's standards, where nothing seems to be shocking, is shocking. He actually shot video of Van Halen having sex with girls and thought that would be a cool thing to show the record company? Did I read that right, Noel? Yeah, yeah, you did. Sure surprised me. I've never seen anything as stupid as that. You know, we knew he was taking movies backstage, and he'd take them guys doing fun stuff and whatever, and... I passed one room and I, I saw that they were taking kind of dirty movies and uh, okay, boys will be boys, you know. But Marshall was taking a lot of them and a lot more than I even knew about. I knew about a couple, and then all of a sudden, Carl Scott at Warner Brothers said, "No, I don't believe this." Well, clue me in, Carl. He said Marshall has made up DVDs and he's shown them to Warner Brothers East Coast and West Coast and it's a mess. You got to understand, these are secretaries who are 
family people. They're not used to the road. A lot of people aren't used to the road, and this may be part of the road, but they don't want to hear about it. And I don't blame them. You don't put that in someone's face. It's wrong. And when that happened, we got a huge backlash. And the lawyer, this this was his death knell. Um, at that point, all the most of the videos were collected, and David took most of them home. I mean, Marshall even gave me one. I looked at it. It was. It was what it is. It was a dirty movie. But I threw it in my box and never took it out and wouldn't even think about taking it out. No one's business now, let alone then. And you would actually have to work and you would actually have to work for a little while to you you did a lot of things to bring those secretaries cuz as a very astute manager you realized that those secretaries could be very important where a lot of people would sort of look down on them you actually went the extra mile and you talk about how you worked when you became the manager to sort of recover from that by sending them limos and having them be able to bring a guest to the show and bringing them to the show in a first class way something that a lot of people wouldn't have necessarily thought of doing but that was a step in sort of the recovery of ingratiating Van Halen back with those women who, in essence, were the the gatekeepers to the label. They were the gatekeepers to the VIPs. They can make you or break you, and they are wonderful people. I dealt with them, you got to understand, Eddie, for years. Different labels, different secretaries, but they were all my friends. And I came into the office in the beginning of, of 79, and and Kay, one of the senior VP secretary, came out to me and said, No, I love you. I'm so glad you're at this band. You'll do great, but I hate your bloody band. I said, Oh, well, they're not so bad. She said, I saw those movies. That's disgusting. Anyhow, we were doing the, the California, I don't know, doing the, the Coliseum show. And we were headlining. And I'm thinking, I got to bring my friends back into this band or I got a problem. So I I spoke to the guy that got our limos, Vern. I said, Vern, I got about 10 or 15 women I got to mollify. And I want them... I want 10 or 15 white stretch limos. He says, no problem. You got it. And the day of the show, um, I had them all picked up at their home with champagne and roses and food and brought to the stadium. And they had a special section that was for them. And no VIP got a free ticket. They got two tickets. Mm. And it really eased the tension. And all of a sudden, they didn't dislike us so much. And hey. it was just what you had to do. Because well, I me, worked on that level. 
Right. Let, let me let me ask you this before we run out of time, too, because a lot of fans have asked me about this, too. And interestingly enough, Michael Anthony was on this show not too long ago talking about this, that there there seems to be a, a, a serious lack of video of Van Halen from this period. And I'm not talking about the sex videos. I'm talking about concert videos in the studio, things like that. And Michael even sort of lamented on the show. He goes, yeah, I wish we would have shot more. I wish we would have had more of the early concerts on video or even us in the studio making the records. There's really not a lot. Is there stuff that maybe we're not aware of or was there just really not time or the thought put into shooting a lot of Van Halen in their early years? Well, basically, we did the most brilliant MTV-type videos. It was David and Peter Angelis who were the, the real brains and genius behind those incredible videos. And you're spending four or 500000 on a video. You know, to bring out a crew to shoot a show doesn't make any sense. Not when you're spending that kind of money on, on videos that that my guys were making. And the videos, MTV loved us. We were the darling of MTV. Certainly not after David left. I didn't see any brilliant videos, did you? Ah, uh, there's a few good ones, Noel. I'll. Sh- <laughs> I listen. You're, you're. I'm a guy that loves both versions of the band. So no, you're not I'm asking you which ones were the. Well, the video for right now, which was a huge song, was was considered a pretty cool video at the time for sure. I didn't see it. I see the rotations. No, I'm not against them. I'm just saying that they're different bands. I agree a hundred percent. Huh? I agree a hundred percent. They're different bands. Well, totally. They're different bands. And that's what yeah. I'm not saying. You know, Hagar is bad. I'm just saying he is a different band. I agree you completely. Eddie away and you brought in, uh, if Hendrix was around with David, it would not be called then anything, would it? I think Hagar's a fine guy. Got no problem. He's got a beautiful voice. You know, he's got good stage presence. He's not, he's not bad. It's just not Van Halen. It let, is let me... Van Hagar. And I really right. have nothing against Van Hagar. I think that they deserve all the credit that you and the fans give them. I have no problem with it. I have a problem with it bickering back and forth. Who's the real 60-year-old? But, I, you know, it's not Eddie, my saying, you know, anything more than they're two different bands. Get and me I don't correct. Th- I don't think anybody would argue with that at all. There's one thing well, I want to ask. What are you saying? I'm saying they are two different bands. I would agree with you. All right. That's all I'm saying. One's oh, yeah. One's Van Hagar, one's Van Halen, and they're not the same band. No, I would agree How completely. How difficult is that to get? Not at all. 
<laughs> Not at all. You know? let, let me ask. Let me I... ask you one other one other thing because there's a great piece of Van Halen folklore that's that that there's there was more of a point to it that you reveal in the book. The legendary Van Halen story about no brown M and M's on the rider. That there was more to that story, and there was a reason why you guys did that, which you talk about in the book. Please share that with the audience before we have to wrap up, if you can, Noel. All right, no problem. That was really um, done because my 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 tour manager came to me and said, "No, they're not reading the writer." And I said, "Okay, I'll get them to read the writer." So I, we got together and we put in. Brown M and M's can't have any brown M and M's. So they had we have bowls of M and M's, and they take hours to take them out. <laughs> well, they read that rider because there was a thousand dollar fine if we found a brown M and M. And then about two years later, we changed it to no Coney Island whitefish. You know what that is? Isn't that a condom? That's uh, a used condom that. Comes up on Coney Island after the weekend. Uh, and we used to call them the kids from New York. They were Coney Island whitefish. And that really threw your promoters. We got every fish known to man except the scumbag. But um, anyhow, that, you know, it was, it became legend and, you know, so too much emphasis put on it. I didn't really push it in my book because, like, everyone talks about it, and everyone knows a different reason why we had it. And but it was done. It was done so simple. people would read, read the, writer the writer to get more attention to the writer. Yeah, how simple was that? Yeah, it's pretty smart. Before I have to go, Noel, let me. Have you heard from any of the guys in Van Halen since this book has come out? Have you? Do you have any contact with any of the guys anymore? No, not really. No, no. When was the last time you talked to anybody from from the band? Was it the day you were let go, which is very, which is in great detail in the book? But was it that? Was that the last time you had contact with them? Yeah, we couldn't come to a an amicable agreement on the contract, and that was it. No more, no more talk about was it. But I mean that had I mean you had such a connection to these guys for so long as you said you pretty much lived with them at every show. Is there any side to you that would would love to see these guys again and to to talk to them again or have you completely moved on from it? Why? You know, I go out to dinner with them but you know, I feel a little tense. <laughs> No, I don't see any reason to, Eddie. You know, let them have their career. Let them have what they got. You know, I basically wrote that book to set it straight. This is what happened. This is what they did to Michael. This is what they did. You know, this was a paternity suit. This was the paternity insurance. I wanted people to know what the real story is before all the writers come out with their version. I mean, right. I look at my... my um, my write-up, and it says I died eight years ago. It says I was a former policeman. It says all these things about me that never happened. And what's going to happen, Eddie, unfortunately, is you're going to get all this, these bullshit stories with people who were never there, 
And if they were, they weren't on the inside. They were way on the outside looking in. If they even went to a show or if they even met the band once or twice. And you're going to find a lot of people you'll be interviewing who are going to be telling you stories about about Van Halen and what happened. And if you just ask them, how long did you hang out with them and how many shows did you see? Uh, That may cut your show short. Right. Well, Noel, I'm glad you wrote the book. I I find the book incredibly entertaining. This is a band that a band for all time during a period that was just absolutely incredible that produced some amazing timeless music that I think to this day still sounds as good as it did when I first heard it and it first came out. And I wish you luck with this book. And should you get to New York, please come sit in with us. And uh, it's it's great to reconnect with you after nearly 30 years. And uh, I wish you luck with this, man. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Eddie, if you ever want to know something, you got my number, call me. I'll be glad to it. talk to you. And if you want me to straighten something out, I will. But I really right. appreciate you. You're a fine interviewer, and you got your stuff together. And I had oh, a thank good you. time. I appreciate well, no, it, Nolan. You. And I will. You I will keep you comfortable your... and happy. Great. I'm glad. And I'll keep your number. It'll be like our Van Halen bat phone. Whenever there's a Van Halen question or dispute, we'll go to Noel Monk. We'll call you, and we'll get it straightened out, and we'll get it put to rest. So that'll be a good thing to do. Absolutely. If you want another interview, no problem. I appreciate it, Noel. Good luck with the book. Thanks for the time, okay? Thank you, Eddie. And you you keep up the wonderful work you do. Appreciate it very much. Take care, okay? Bye-bye. Thanks to Noel Monk, former manager of Van Halen, for joining us with so many great stories. We could definitely do a part two with Noel, and maybe we will somewhere down the line. Again, check out his book out now, Running with the Devil. Buy it in my storefront, Amazon.com slash shop slash Eddie Trunk. Go there, and you'll see the book right there. Easy enough to click and buy. And uh, appreciate you uh, buying everything through that storefront the Van Halen book, the stuff that's listed there, or anything else. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Eddie Trunk. EddieTrunk.com is the website. Katie Irizarry is the producer of the Eddie Trunk podcast. If you are listening on post-day July 20th, check me out 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time, live from the Apollo Theater today on Channel 106, Guns N' Roses pre-show coverage, and then check me out coming to you live at 9 p.m. Eastern from the Apollo setting up the Guns N' Roses concert that night on Channel 41, all on Sirius XM. You guys have a great week. I will uh, also see you if you're in Lima, Ohio this weekend for Loud in Lima. And I'll see you here next Thursday for another episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast. You're on PodcastOne.com and iTunes.
I'm Tavish Smiley, and I am excited to tell you that I have a brand new podcast that you can hear on podcastone.com. I start this July with a taste of Tavish, which is a two-show series with guests John Mellencamp and ESPN's Stephen A. Smith. Then I'll return this September with my new weekly podcast. So join the conversation this July for the taste of Tavis and again for our weekly show, which starts in September. It's the Tavis Smiley podcast coming to podcastone.com, the Podcast One app, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts.